Welcome to Turnbenders, the sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio, and Dustin is at Pulse Train. Okay, so we got a bunch of questions, and uh, the first one is, Tonebenders, what was your most challenging project and why? And that's from Autodream underscore Sound at Twitter. Who wants to go first on that one? Boy, that's tough right there. I know. I was trying to figure out what my most challenging one was. They're all challenging in their own respect, right? Um, I had a film that we did for the Sci-Fi Channel called Mongolian Deathworms that was particularly tricky. Mongolian Deathworms? Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Big giant worms crawling underground and then bursting through the earth and eating people with a super, super tiny budget. And I didn't get to see VFX until Final Mix. Um, So I was working with Wireframe a lot um, and very little communication with the director. And it was a lot of me just swinging blindly and seeing what the heck was going to happen. And then then getting feedback with, you know, a week left. So that was tough. And that's why that was tough. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, I think the one that comes to mind is the one that I'm currently working on, actually, which is... uh... It's an immersive storytelling experience is what they're calling it. And it's uh, basically a series of short films that's only viewable on an iPad or a mobile device. And uh, it's all wrapped up into an application and it's all interactive and it's spread across. The whole thing happens across five days. So the amount of assets that I've had to generate is quite a bit larger than I'm used to for a linear piece of media. And keeping it consistent and making sure that all that interactivity works and then dealing with some of the quirks of iOS and trying to treat it like a true video game, but with exponentially longer cutscenes. I don't know. It's a weird way of working. It's not quite a film, but it's not quite a video game. So it's somewhere in this weird uh, nebulous gray area. So it's been, it's been challenging to figure out the workflow and figure out how to craft the assets to work within the app and within the film and also tell the proper story. Um, it's kind of all over the map, but it's been fun, but it's certainly been uh, difficult at points. What kind of weird iOS challenges are you running into? Uh, just some things like how many streams can you play at the same time? And, you know, we're doing things like during the course of the film, depending on what geographic location you are in, you'll see something different. Uh, so in order to load that different piece of video, you know, the, at, at the beginning they were loading an entirely different piece of video. They had a bunch of chunks that were uh, location-specific, and they drop the initial video, load the next one, depending on where you were from, play that, then drop that, then go on. And obviously that was creating all types of problems with audio, you know? Mm -hmm. Because the audio at that point in the film was just a consistent bed, you know? So you'd get pops and clicks. Obviously you're just cutting something. So we didn't really want to change the composition of the music or sound, so we ended up trying to figure out, well, okay, how can we play a consistent stream all the way through but maintain sync because there's obviously going to be a delay when you drop video. So it's weird weird stuff like that. 
due to the nature of the way that they're trying to tell this story. It's been interesting, to say the least. I think we've all learned quite a bit. Nice. Um, what's the playtime on it? Like, how much content is it? Uh, I mean, if you were to go through the whole thing front to back in one sitting, you could get through it in probably like a couple hours. Hmm. But uh, the way it's set up is that you have to wait for certain events to happen, even in real life. So it's spread out over the course of five days or six days. Sorry. Gotcha. Um, yeah. And the app actually interacts back with you. So there's an instance where you see a phone number and you call the phone number and it says something. And then two days later in in the uh, you know the course of the story, the application calls you back on your phone and says something, and then you can go on. It's pretty cool. That's cool. It's a lot of fun, yeah. It's a lot of fun. That'll freak out the kids that don't know how to make a phone call. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> it's definitely not a children's story, I'll say. <laughs> what about you, Tim? I think that the more challenging things that I've worked on like everything's obviously a challenge, but I feel like when I first started out in the business and you don't have confidence, every even smaller projects compared to what I'm working on now, they seem to like you're always pushing your boundaries when you're first starting out. So every new project is your most challenging project because you're always kind of biting off a little more than you can chew. That's a great point. As you go on, you start getting more confidence and you start being able to rely on your ability to expand and you also know what your limits are so you know not to go beyond them at certain times so i feel like i'm kind of in a groove now where each new project i take on you get that adrenaline rush when you're first encountering it but then you have the confidence to know i'm going to be able to get through this i gotta figure out these challenges but i really feel when i first started out that like every time i started something new i wouldn't be able to sleep for like the night before because i was just like oh my god when this comes in what am i going to tackle first what am i going to do next and everything just seems so overwhelming so I guess the most challenging thing I worked on was a, a sci-fi movie that I did set sound effects for uh, when I was first starting out. And that was, I was in so far over my head that uh, luckily it all worked out in the end, but it was, it was daunting. What was it about? Uh, it was a, like a B movie for the sci-fi channel. Uh, I've done two of those. <laughs> yeah. The, this one, uh, the plot was actually fairly uh, non-existent. It was uh it wasn't a what I would call a good film, but uh, had lots of lasers in it, so that was fun. It wasn't right up there with Sharknado then, huh? Well, I haven't seen Sharknado, but I heard that that's pretty pretty fun. Like they had to, <laughs> like they, it was tongue in cheek, but I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But yeah. it sounds like it would be a, a good uh, thing to watch if you were, had a couple in you. Nice. It's a great point about starting out, though. I remember the first feature that I did kind of by myself, and it was... Uh, yeah, I didn't ha yet have the confidence. You know, I didn't let my clients know that, of course, but uh, I didn't quite have the confidence of <laughs> knowing the workflow inside and out. So there was a lot of trial and error on that uh, on that project, and just yeah, it was a bit scary to be honest. But yeah, exactly, anyway, terrifying. Yeah. As you uh, as you go through your the arc of your career, I think yeah, those things become more and more just second nature. What's trickier for me is I went through the same thing, but I think I was less scared and more just, um, I didn't realize how deep in I was early. Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> and so it, it didn't terrify me. Now, I feel more terrified now when I feel like I, I get a project in and it's like, I know exactly what I'm going to do on that. Like, that's not a good vibe because I, I don't want to be in a rut, 
you know, I need to, mm-hmm. I need to try new things and, and push different ways. And I'm definitely, I'm, I'm hovering in that area dangerously right now. And I really need to figure out some ways to push myself out of that. Cause that's what scares me. Being in a rut. Yeah. Getting stuck. Yeah. Yeah. Having, you know, things that are too automatic that I just go straight to these things, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard, especially when you're at a facility like you are, Renee, you know, you tend to get consistent client base. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been doing the stars open for, you know, eight years or whatever. So mm-hmm. it's like, yeah, it's difficult to keep yourself, uh, you know, to the point of the questions. Sometimes it's difficult, depending on your position, to keep yourself challenged. Yeah. In addition to the challenge of trying to remain creative and stuff, there's also the challenges that now you're better at, like time management and just IT stuff that when you're first starting out, you, you just don't have your head wrapped around yet. So there's a, a fear to that. That's not necessarily the actual work of putting the sounds together and building the soundscape. Right. That's- and that's probably trickier if you're working alone. And, and that's something that I've honestly, I've never really been in that situation. I've always had somebody around me to at least take that pressure off of me of here. Here's how you're going to do this, but you know, you're going to do it. Yeah. Okay. So next we have uh, David Cairns. He says, hi guys, I'm currently on vacation in Cancun and have blasted through all the episodes in two days while laying by the pool. I'll be signing up for the Sound Collectors Club as soon as I return home. In a weird way, much to my wife's disapproval, I'm honestly excited and re-energized to get back to work and have your podcast to thank. My day-to-day work is split between production sound mixing and audio posts for broadcast spots. Lately, I found myself becoming a little burnt out and possibly capping out in my market with my capabilities and my current client list. There aren't too many people in my line of work in St. Louis to bounce ideas off. And hearing your excitement about audio and, more importantly, your war stories help me to remember that I'm not alone out there. Thanks again, and keep up the great work. Right on. Thank you. Thanks for listening. St. Louis, man, that's tricky over there. But, you know, you don't have to be in L.A. to make a living doing this. Yeah, well, none of us are. Right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And next up we have... uh, from Germany, Christian, oh man, I'm going to ruin this name, Heike, 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 anyways, <laughs> Christian, you know how to say your name. Hi guys, first of all, I want to thank you for the podcast and keep up the great work. Now here's my question. How does your job affect your private life? Do you have much time for other stuff you like to do? Are you married? I don't want to get personal, but I was wondering how the other side of your life looks. Thanks. Greetings from Germany. Uh, I'll yeah. go first on that. So my wife is extremely supportive of, of what I do and of what it takes for me to go get done what I need to get done. She is the type that will go buy me a little whistle or weird noisemaker if she sees one. When we're traveling, we like to take road trips and just jump in the car and go places. And it usually takes an extra two or three hours because we will find a spot out in the middle of nowhere and I'll pull way off, you know, for a few miles and we'll go, I'll go record the grass bending under the wind for a minute. And so she's very, uh, she's very patient with me and with my need to, uh, to do all of that, even when I'm out and about with her. So that's kind of where I'm at. How do you balance the hours and just kind of the general day-to-day grind that this industry can sometimes be? You know, with me, it's, It's going to change here in a minute because right now she's a restaurant manager. And so her hours are opposite of mine a fair amount. So she's very jealous of the time that we can have together. So if she's off one evening, then we're spending that evening together. But with that said, there are many evenings where she is working 
Um, and so, or, you know, weekend days or whatever. And so <clears throat> on those times, it's easy for me just to swing into the studio and crank on whatever I'm cranking on mm-hmm. or just field trip out and record something <clears throat> just because I can. That's going to shift here in a minute with uh, with a child coming and with uh, with her career shifting. So we'll see how that goes then. <laughs> yeah, everything's about to change, Renee. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> yeah. So my situation is uh, similar. I'm married and I have a three-month-old baby right now. And uh, up until the kid, I had lots of time to do what I wanted. And now I have no time and I never do anything I want. But that will change as the kid gets older, I hope. Nope. But, you know. (laughs) But it is tough because, uh, like, when my kid was born on a Sunday... And it was a long weekend, that weekend in Canada. So I took Monday off, and I took Tuesday off, and I was back full-time at work on Wednesday. Wow. So I wasn't able to get basically any time off for the kid. And that I worked for myself, so it wasn't like I had a boss whipping me to do that. I just, you know, I, I had contracts that I had to work on and deadlines that I had to meet. So the kid was also 12 days late, which screwed it up. If he had been born on time, I would have had about a week off, but... He wasn't born during the week that I'd planned to get off. Uh, but yeah, so it, it, for me, because I, I, it's just me, I don't have uh, other people to cover for me when things go wrong. It's difficult because I can't get sick. There's times when I can't get sick. And I'll tell you, every Christmas I get sick because I end up getting like four or five days off around the holidays and my body just goes, oh, I'm allowed to be sick. And I just get sick as a dog over Christmas just because my body recognizes a time to let down. And uh, I just go fall to pieces. But it's difficult. But one of the things that is helpful is that I I like doing my job. So it's not as much a drag as if it was something that I just was rolling my eyes and dragging my feet every time I went into the office. Yeah, I think that makes a big difference, too. You know, as as I've been preparing for this kid coming around and talking to all my family and everybody, it's amazing how many people in my life around me just go to work and grind and hate it, but they need the paycheck, you know? And it's a whole different vibe when you love what you do. Yeah. Sure. Looking so, for time to go do it. So Tim, how do you, if, if you do manage the day to day grind, do you have any kind of rules for yourself or any, uh, time management rules of thumb to keep yourself in check? It depends. Like right now I'm working mostly on animated episodic television series. And what I try and do is map out each episode so that each day I have to get to a certain minute mark and I plan it out so that I have more time to do the end of the show because that's normally where everything explodes and the big chase scene is and a little more time at the beginning of the show because you got to set up the session and there's normally a little exciting sequence at the top. But, you know, if I have five days to work on the show on day one, I have to get to the four minute mark on day two. I have to get to the 10 minute mark. Because not it's not it's normally not as busy from minute four to ten as it is off the top, but so I just gotta get make my minutes, and uh, you gotta time manage just appropriately, and uh, I don't know, get home on time. Cool. Sometimes I I have a home system as well as an office system, so sometimes uh, when my wife goes to bed, I go down into the basement and keep working if I didn't get to where I needed to get to. But mostly it's just uh, staying on focus and yep. uh, getting through. That's cool. I, I've taken the, the minutes approach to the longer format stuff as well. Seems to be working okay for me. The work-life balance thing has typically been um, a very big struggle for me. Um, 
I have a girlfriend with two kids. They're older. So, yes, Tim, your life will, it won't <laughs> change as they get older. Uh, yeah, then they go into sports. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's where I'm <laughs> off to right now. I'm off to the, the boys' uh, football game. So, but yeah, I and I am the prototypical workaholic. I mean, that's really my life is work in one form or another. So, you know, before... When I was living in Los Angeles, I, that's literally all I did. All I did. I was, um, I mean, I was at the studio from seven thirty, eight o'clock until ten o'clock, two in the morning, and then do it again the next day. Do it again the next day. Do it again the next day. Weekend, same thing. I would be the only one in there all the time. You know, this is kind of part of the double-edged sword of doing something you love. Is that uh, I, I just wanted to do that all the time. But I did, after a while, find myself getting a little burnt out, and I realized that my relationships with everyone, friends, um, girlfriends, family, was suffering for it. My health was suffering for it. I became, I think, a, you know, in the grand context of life, a, a very unhealthy person. And my work also suffered for it. You know, there's this uh, myth that if you work all the time, your work will be better and you'll get more done. But I think what I've realized as I've gotten older and a little wiser, not much wiser, but a little wiser, that that's not true. So I do cut myself off now. And I make sure that I go out and do things and see my friends and my family and my loved ones. If you're doing creative work and you're stuck inside of the studio only working on that work, your creativity is limited. Yep. Because you have to go out and experience things in order to be creative, in order to give new life to your projects experience new things and uh, have a different perspective on the projects that you have and the projects that are upcoming. And you also just need a break. You need to shut your mind off. You need to do other things. So I've made a very, very conscious effort in the last probably two years to, to do that and to, you know, still work like a madman, much to the chagrin of my girlfriend. But um, yeah, I do take a break and I do make sure that at least on most days, <laughs> that I do something that's not work-related. And it's important. And I think I, I know that I feel better as a person. I know that my relationships in my life are much better. And I think I'm healthier overall for it. And my work is better. My work is much, much better. So, But it can get crazy, and it's always tough, you know? I run two businesses now. I have a girlfriend with two kids. Uh, my family's on the other side of the, of the country my sister's out of country, so organizing all of these different things in life is is nuts, but you, you got to do it, and you can't let one of those things overtake all of the others. It's just not a good, it's not a good place to be. For sure. Yep. And I'll say this, you got you to gotta support the people around you so that you can expect the support from them on the way back, you know? Totally. When totally. the people around you need you there for something, you need to go do that so that when it's time for you to go need to do something they can support you in the same way. Yep. My girlfriend sent me this quote the other day. I think it was a slight hint. <laughs> she said, <laughs> it, the quote was, uh, on their deathbed, no one ever said, I wish I had worked more. You know, I wish I was in the office more. No one ever says that. You know, so, so uh, you can get lost in it when you're in the moment, but life is life and you have to live it. You know, and life is much more than this work. Even though this work is amazing and we love it, you got to go out and do other things. And you have to, I think that what we're all saying here is that you have to work at it. 
You know, you have to make a conscious effort to get out of the studio, to stop recording, to stop making crazy noises and go and go have a beer with your friends and talk about sports or talk about life or whatever. But you have to make that you have to make that conscious choice. Because if yep. you were like me and like probably like you guys, if left to your own devices, you're just going to sit in your studio all day. Because that's where you want to be. That's your life's passion, right? Mm-hmm. So you got to well, make a conscious effort to get out. Well, it also makes your art better. I mean, like you said a second ago, if you if you go out and have some actual life experiences, then you'll have some a more um, refined aesthetic to draw from when it comes time to actually make art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone always said to me, you know, they ask why I don't listen to music when I'm on the train. And I said, well, because if someone's in a project, upcoming project says, I want this to sound like the red line, well, I need to know what the red line sounds like. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can extrapolate from that. Like, unless you go out and experience the world, how are you supposed to create these environments? You have no idea what they sound like. So even though you're living your life, you're kind of still working. So if that's what it takes to rationalize it to yourself, to go out to a bar and have fun, do it. (laughs) I found that uh, on a kind of more micro daily management level is that I work really well from about 8 a.m., until uh, like 1 a.m., well, 1 a.m., <laughs> 1 p.m., <Nice. laughs> uh, and then I have lunch around 1 normally, and I've found that I'm just not good from like 2 till 3.30 or so. I don't get much creativity done. My brain just is not working that way. Mm-hmm. So I normally have lunch, and then that's when I'll tackle the emails I have to do and the, you know, the stupid chores and the load transferring and backing up and all that stuff. So in the middle of the day, I kind of take a creativity break and I do all the other things that I get out of the way. And then around three thirty till six, I can get back into my kind of more creative brain and cut, cut, cut and go nuts with the sound work. But I find if I try and just trudge straight through from like 8 a.m. till six, I just die halfway through the afternoon and it, yeah. I just get nothing done. So I, I kind of built in this little zone in the middle of the day where I don't do sound. I do sound related things, but I'm not actually have my head buried deep in the project during that time. That's a good idea for maybe an upcoming show. So just talk about workflow tips for getting things done, stuff that we figured out. Because I have, I have some, a lot of those actually that I figured out, you know, like you said, one of, one of which is knowing yourself taking stock of how you work and figuring out how to best take advantage of your most creative moments. Yep. Cool. Okay, and uh, another question we have is uh, maybe make a segment on how you create certain sound effects, example, explosions, and using different sounds, high-end, low-end, lion's roar, etc. And uh, we kind of have that with Renee. You're going to take us through a sound that you've made? Yeah, um, I've got a segment that we're going to do today of a uh, power-down light sound effect that the Dallas Stars asked me to do. Those things seem to be popular. So our segment on breaking down how we created the big laser gun uh, ended up going over pretty well. People seem to like it. So I'd like to do one more. Instead of having you sit and listen to me noodle around and try and find a bunch of sounds, what I'm going to do this time is a post-mortem on an actual project that I was hired to do recently. The in-arena presentation for the Dallas Stars is going to have a moment in the upcoming season where the lights go down and there's going to be a cool power down sound effect. And basically that was the exact language that was given was make a cool power down sound effect that can be played in sync with the lights turning off in the arena going to black before the 
open video plays and the stars come out and hit the ice. So it takes about two or three seconds for the lights to power down. And like generally speaking, I want the effect to be a nice, big, impactful effect. Uh, stands people up, kind of gets them paying attention to this big, important moment. I basically want it to be a cheer prompt because they know something's going to happen and it's going to be cool in the next few seconds. So what I usually look for when I'm looking for a big kind of impactful thing initially is some sort of metallic hit, big metallic pump, something like that. What I ended up finding was one of my go-to effects, which is my big thick metal garage door that I recorded at our old studio um, that I just love. It sounds like this. Just kind of that by itself. And you know, I have many, many of those, but that's the one that I chose. As far as processing is concerned, I just used the regular channel strip and added a whole bunch of high end to it just to really brighten it up because that's the specific tonality I'm looking for, something bright on that. The next layer I had was a freezer door that came from Tim Preble's Doors Project, which I am grateful that he did just about every day of my life because I'm always digging into it and finding cool impacts and creaks and squeaks and stuff like that. So the specific freezer door was this one, um, which had some nice kind of low end to it. And I didn't do anything to it. I just kind of layered it with my initial garage door. Sounds like this. There was another door in place that had a cool kind of zippy sound to it. I'll play the whole door. Sounds like this. So what I ended up doing, here it is again. It's got that nice kind of front end and all I wanted to do is keep the zip at the front end of it. So I clip gained the living hell out of it. I clip gained it up about 30 dB. So it sounded like this. So it's all I was catching was just that much of it. Then with the channel strip, I jacked the high end way up and I kicked up an enhancer and did it even more uh, at an 8.2 dB at 160 and at 5.25. Then I kicked on the sans amp to crunch it with some, uh, some distortion. And then I kicked up the metaphalanger to bend it around a little bit. So all of those things to kind of get it all up there um, and give it a little movement. So all together, my three layers sounded like this. Which is nice and fun. Uh, then, you know, for your generic light moment, um, I added some electricity. In this case, I used Tonsturm's electricity library where they electrified an apple, which I absolutely love. Here's the apple being electrocuted by itself. Just kind of got a nice warm mid-rangey kind of feel it just feels very good for this purpose so i dug it so what i did was in order to accentuate the fact that the lights were coming down was i took the tail of it and i pitch bent it down sounds like this just to kind of really spell out the fact that the lights are coming down So altogether, those four effects now sound like this. 
which is a nice starting point. Last thing I did was I added one more layer of electricity. Uh, again, from Tonstrom's electricity, this is electrifying a bone and literally nothing else to it. Just grab that sound straight. I really love it for that super high frequency thing that it has going on there. I, I definitely look to that library for those types of things. So then all together, everything sounds like this. And that's just kind of my skeleton. Now, as any good sound designer will do, I built options for my peoples. Um, I used that skeleton, that bass with the impact and the, and the bend as my base for all of the options that I built. I built four options. The things that I did to really differentiate it was I broke out massive and inside of massive, I did different synth things. So for the first variation, I did this. And for the second one, I did something like this. So those are really good at kind of just spelling out the pitch shift down, lights coming down and still being kind of a big, thick, cool sounding thing. Then I kind of wanted to get away from the sub-literal thing. This is my favorite of the four, where I did more of a uh, alarm kind of thing. Which has just tons of thick, awesome low end. I know it's going to sound amazing in the arena. And then the last one I did was this guy. Which actually was a little bit of some waveform manipulation there. I laid the sound in and then took the back half of it and flipped it backwards to get that nice kind of reverse stop to it. So in all of those, I'm just looking for textures that convey electricity and light and bending. Now with the actual rest of the skeletons put together, this is my version A that I've sent to the client. And version B. And version C. I like that one. And version D. So at some point, they're going to pick one of these. And if you go to a Stars game in 2013, 2014, you'll hear one of them as the lights go down and the open video plays, and then the team hits the ice. I really enjoy getting to do that kind of stuff for the team. You know, it's something that it's kind of a sync effect, and it's kind of not. There's not an actual, like, video element that goes with it. It's a lighting cue that has a, a big sound event that goes with it, and I really dig that. So how much does your knowledge of the space inside the arena affect what you're... Uh, oh, a there. ton, a ton, because that arena has a very specific sound system in it. It's got line arrays that do run in stereo. They don't run in mono, but the stereo spread is very wide. So you can really hear things moving left to right in any given seat. It's got 12 channels of surround sound around the outside edges. The outside edges don't play any uh, sound below 300 hertz, though, so you can't do anything low. And because they're shooting down and in instead of out with the other ones, you can't do any rhythmic things on the outside. And the 
subwoofer system is pretty intense. It's center hung right in the middle of the scoreboard and it shoots down and it bounces off either the ice or the basketball court, depending on what's down there. And then it blooms kind of out and up. And it's a massive low end they're capable of in there, way more so than what I can actually do at my studio. So I do have to be aware of that as I'm as I'm putting things together. And is it super uh, echoey in there or... No, it's actually treated very well. They have treatment across the entire ceiling of it, of uh, sound deadening curtains on the top. And then the bleachers and the stands deaden the bottom very well, too. There is a relatively long reverb in the room, so I never reverberate anything that goes to the arena. But it's not a dense uh, mix of the verb when you play it in there. I know that I've heard some things in other arenas around town that aren't treated nearly as well, and it's incredibly reverberant. So not only is the reverb tail really long, the mix of reverb to direct signal is really high. And in the American Airlines Center, they have that very well controlled. It's just, it's an acoustically beautiful space. It really is. Specifically for that type of stuff too, for the big cinematic stylized fun thing frequencies that you find get lost in a sold out stadium or that get emphasized or because you're actually in the house when these things get played right it, it it does a lot more low end than i'm capable of in here so i have to be careful with that i've definitely done some things where you know i was crushing the low end to really make it work in my room here and by the time it got to the arena it was too much really that's the only thing that i really have to watch though it's pretty flat from, I'd say, I don't know, 100, 200 up. It's it's really good in there. <laughs> it's really good. Impressive. Yeah. And I also work really closely with the the guys that run the sound in there as well. And they're they're just incredible at what they do. And they're and they're friends of mine too. So, you know, it's we can very commonly have a conversation where I will show up at the arena with something that I've built for the stars or for the Mavericks. And we'll play it and we'll test it and they'll tweak it and EQ it or whatever to make it just sit exactly so in the room. But if something's way off, which actually hasn't happened in a while, but if something's way off, I can just come to the studio and tweak it and then give them a new mix back based on what I heard in the arena. So just as a uh, kind of process question for you, when you're told the sound that you they want or you see the picture that you're mixing to or designing for, how much of it is when you see it, you come up with a sound in your head and you're trying to get that sound out of your gear? And how much is it roaming around looking for a sound that might work? Well, in this specific instance, it was a lot of just roaming around. <laughs> the parts that I had in my head were the parts that I put into the skeleton, right? Like I knew I wanted it to have a big, strong snap with full frequencies all the way to low end up top, right? And I knew I wanted electricity to be there and to bend down. But then when it came time to adding the synth elements and all of that, really it was me just cruising around a whole bunch of patches until I found something that I liked. And then I used that to iterate out. When it's something that has a lot of video elements to it, there are th certain things that are dictated to you. You know, like if it's a hockey highlight video, you know, there's a bunch of specific skating and specific, you know, slap shots. And, you know, I like to ping the puck off the post to really spell it out in the highlight videos, even if it didn't actually hit the post on the way into the net. I do that <laughs> a lot, you know, in the big hits and all that kind of stuff. But when they do the kind of stylized transitions and the stylized hits and splashes, that's where it tends to be more me roaming around and finding things um, on accident as much as I can. 
Yeah, because a lot of times when I see something, I hear kind of imagine what the sound should be like in my head. And I sometimes spend a lot of time trying to get it as close to that initial perception as I can. Yeah. But then on your path to doing that, you're always stumbling across, ooh, what's this? And it takes you in this direction or takes you in that direction. And I was just wondering uh, how often do you ever just stick to your initial idea or are you always roaming? What I'll say is that I will tend to have moderately broadly defined ideas that I'm looking for. And then I will allow myself to find interesting things within those moderately broad definitions. So no, like for example, you know, when I'm reading the email and it says, Hey, we need a big power down sound effect for when the lights go out. I'm not going to, in my mind, dream up exactly the sound that I want to go create. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to break it into a couple of elements in my mind and go find things that might hit those couple of elements and then start playing with them and seeing how they actually work together. And when you are looking for your elements, do you look for the elements in terms of frequency per element or do you just want to make sure all the frequency, like, do you think electricity will cover this zone, the hit will cover this zone, or do you want to just find things and then merge them together and then fill out the, the frequencies through that way? I definitely, I do think very analytically with regards to frequency content and dynamic range. And also pitch movement. I kind of intellectualize those on the front end. So for example, and you may have heard of me describing it that way, you know, that I needed, I needed a big thumpy impact crack right at the beginning because I wanted it to sound like something almost broke <laughs> on the way to the, to the lights coming down. You know, some big, sharp, full frequency event, you know, low frequency, mid frequency, high frequency. I needed all there for just a moment and as a sharp peak. So yeah, in that sense, I am intellectualizing about frequency content and dynamic range, but I'm not necessarily intellectualizing about the elements that I'm going to use to get me there. I'm just looking for any element at all that'll get me there, which is why I end up kind of at doors or crashes or explosions or any of that type of generic stuff that does give me what I'm looking for in those spots. It's interesting that you use so much of the electricity library from Tonstrom. Is that how you pronounce it? How do you pronounce that word? Tonstrom. Tonstrom. Yeah, the R, the U R M, N. They're in different order than I ever expect. <laughs> but uh, there's one in there called Big Marks Generator, uh-huh. and uh, I've used that to uh, simulate the sound that doesn't actually exist of a giant bank of lights being turned off. Yeah, that they always use in the movies, and yeah. I've used that one a ton. So I, when you when you cranked open that library, I was curious to see if you're going to use that sound because that's one I've used a lot. That library is awesome. I love that library. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It's definitely my go-to for electricity. Like if I if I ever even think I'm going to need electricity, that's the one that I go to because it's so much better than anything else that's out there. And the same is true. You know, there's a lot of gold and there were only so many people that that got access to Tim Preble's doors. I don't know if, did you get into that, Tim? No, I didn't. Yeah. And I'm bitter to this day. It's, it's such an amazing library for all of those weird little zips and whoops and clunks and, and that kind of stuff just from these various doors that people have recorded all around the world. And I know Tim wanted to release it for sale. And I think he had a hard time getting that amount of content up to his standards with regards to quality. Cause there was definitely some iffy stuff in there, but man, I just, I rely on that thing daily. And 
that was one of the better decisions I ever made was just to participate in that little thing. That's yeah, for just sure. for context, you want to just describe to people what it was? Because it was probably four or five years ago now. Yeah. So four or five years ago, Tim Preble put out the call and said, hey, I want to do a crowdsourced library. Sign up. And what you're going to need to do is go record a door with all of these iterations to it. So, you know, soft close, medium close, hard close, both from a near perspective and from a wide perspective. And, you know, contribute a couple doors. I think I think there was two or three doors you had to contribute. There was some minimum number. And then ship them to him. And then he compiled them all onto a hard drive and shipped the drive around the world. And, you know, basically one of us would get a drive. We'd dump it all off to our library and then move the drive on to the next person that participated. So we all kind of pitched in and, and did that. There was going to be no way to host that much data on any kind of web server and have people be able to reliably download it because it's huge. And yeah, you just got some of the most amazing stuff in there. And when I got my drive in, I spent, I think probably a solid two months just going through it and tagging the metadata out that way that I want and getting rid of some of the stuff that I never wanted to hear again. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, but tagging some of the badass stuff as like incredibly badass stuff. And man, anytime I work on a film, anytime I work on any kind of live action, anything that has a door in it, that's the library I go to. And also for things like this, where I need specific kind of moves like that, there's some really, really cool stuff in that library. And, you know, some really big names recording it too. Like, you know, Charles Maines contributed to that. Uh, Mike Niederquil contributed to that. Obviously, Tim contributed to it. I think Frank Bree contributed to it. So there's a lot of, you know, big names that really put some killer recordings in it. And all of you listening, if you don't have it, you'll never get it. Well, and well, the thing was, I think at the time, the expectation was that he was going to release it through Hiss and Aurora. Mm-hmm. But it just ended up being so massive and unwieldy. I mean, I understand why he probably doesn't have time to deal with it. And like I said, I'm I'm super grateful that I got it on my drive. So... That's, that's kind of what I got to say about that. It was a very forced Gump kind of sign-off. Yeah. That's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, damn it. Uh, <laughs> I said good day. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to a comedian recently who was saying how like far things have come that like in the 1920s, that was like the insult. Right. When you when you're tired of somebody you wanted to tell them to screw off, you'd say, I said good day, sir. <laughs> I asked you to have a nice day. Yeah, exactly. That was as rude as it got. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes. I need a nap badly. <laughs> and I'm not going to get it. But uh Yeah. So you use Massive when you built the uh Canon in the previous episode, and it sounds like you use Massive again today. So that's your go to for census? Well, for those kind of big, thick sounds, it's the, yeah, it is for that kind of stuff. Uh, And it was like I was talking about in the comments section earlier. I do worry sometimes that I go to certain things a little too quickly. So I'm going to have to make a conscious effort the next time I do need to build something like that to go find a different tool and build it a different way just to make sure that I can do it a different tool. It's a little tricky, right? Because I'm definitely of the mentality that I prefer to have a few deep tools that I can work at a deep level instead of having a hundred tools that I can go tinker with across, but at a more shallow level, you know what I mean? But I think when it comes to generating elements, I'm I'm probably going to have to broaden my scope. 
where do you think you'll look? I don't know. <laughs> um, well, and it's tough too, because I'm working at going more into synthesis because so much of my comfort level is not that. So much of my personal comfort level is, you know, recordings, manipulating recorded sounds. And so, you know, maybe I need to kick open FM8 or some other kind of other types of synthesis or, you know, build some more of my own patches in Massive from scratch um, just to really find that. That might be something good to ask the listeners for in the comments section if you guys can uh, give us ideas of places to go other than Massive. Yeah, well, because honestly, I love Massive. <laughs> it's really good. And, you know, I'm not... I'm not a show for any one company or another, but I do find that that's the easiest one. If I've got a deadline and I need to blow someone's hair back, that that's a really good way to do it. For sure. Anyways, the big takeaway that I have, the, the big thing that I was trying to express, I guess, with the segment is have a plan, deliver versions. Versions are always good. And it's funny too, because my favorite version was not the first version I built. My favorite version personally ended up being the third one. Once I kind of got into that creative thing, even though the first two are certainly viable, you know, you go, th you go through a journey to get there. But in the end, I think that my clients are going to end up picking the fourth version because they like the way that it kind of and stopped. So um, you never know what's going to turn somebody else's ear on and what's going to tweak them. So how did you pick uh, four as the amount of versions to give to them? That was the amount of versions that I could do that I felt were at that high enough level in that period of time. And it's just, at some point I ran out of time and that's how many I had. So if you had only had three, you would have given them three. And if you had six, you would have given them six or is six too many. I think six may be too many. I think once I get past about four or five, I need to start whittling it down. Yeah. I find that it's just, if you, I find them, if you give more than four or five, you give them so many ideas that they start going, well, we want this part from this one and this part from this one. And then you can't actually satisfy all their new ideas. Exactly. So you have to kind of corral them down to a few, uh, fewer concepts to wrap around their brains. Yep. Wrap their brains around. Yep. And you know, and these are some of my best clients and they're really good clients in the fact that they'll take the elements and they will pick one and they'll use it and it's all good. Now, will they make their decision based on listening it to it on their laptops, or will they actually load it up on the system in the stadium, listen to the four, and decide that way? I think initially they listen to it on their laptops. They have not gone to the arena yet to listen to it. It's it's more of a production to listen to it in the arena because you have to go on a dark day, and then you have to have your uh, audio tech there with you to actually load it up and play it. So. My stars producers are not audio techs that can do that on their own. Um, yeah. So they have to coordinate some people, basically, to hear it in the arena. Uh, with that said, you know, at the beginning of a hockey season, there's a bunch of rehearsal that does go on. And so that's one of the things that gets plugged into the rehearsals. Cool. How far before the game starts do they start the in-arena entertainment? Uh, let's see. Puck usually drops at 7.05. And I think the lights would come... The, the whole order of operations is warm-ups end with 30 minutes before puck drop, something like that. So in that 30-minute interim after warm-ups, they have a whole script of TV spots that they run. And then at the end of that script of spots, lights go down, open video plays, open video ends, national anthem gets sung, 
Then they bring some military guys out and honor them. Then a kid drops the puck. I've done this so many years. I have it all in my head. A kid comes out and drops the puck. And then it's the uh, the big up and pump up song and then drop the puck at 7.05. So that's probably like 10 minutes, 15. Yeah, I guess I'm what I'm wondering is like how you said you'd have to test it on a dark day. Yes. And like if, if in mid-season, if you're coming up with new things, which I granted you probably are doing most of it before the season starts, but like, isn't there, like, doesn't everyone get there three hours before the game starts? Couldn't you run some things before the crowd comes in? Uh, you could. And so, and to some degree that does happen because they do, they do different opens. Like they'll do the open that happens at the beginning of the year. And then they'll do another one for the holidays. They'll do a Christmas open and a new year's open. And then they'll do another one after the holidays. Uh, sometimes I'll go back to the beginning of the year one, but sometimes not. And then there's a different open that happens if you make the playoffs. And in um, Dallas, that's a big if. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Watch, it's going to happen. I live in Toronto, so I I, I live in Toronto. Who, uh, it's been five years. It's a pretty it's bold right, statement for someone that's in Toronto. So No, but I'm telling you, new coach, new division, it's going to be good. <laughs> um, But the... Uh, yeah, but you do have to kind of produce all those elements and test them out in the arena and tweak them and do all of that. There are dark days. It's really tricky in the middle of hockey season because it's also simultaneously in Dallas basketball. anyway, basketball season. So you have both the Stars and the Mavericks occupying game days. And there's and they also run concerts in there as well on some of the off days. So when you're in the midst of it, there's only a couple dark days a month. And so, yeah, in, in those instances, you do have to just show up early and do those types of rehearsals early on a game day. Well, that was more for me. I don't even know if people listening are interested in how that works. But hey, why not? I was interested. We'll put it out there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thanks a lot for uh, doing that segment, Renee. It was awesome. Right on. Thank you to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks for the questions that you guys send in. We have fun doing that. Uh, thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders and go to Tonebenders.net to leave a comment. Also, check us out at Facebook.com slash Tonebenders podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at Tonebenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at tonebenders.net.